My name is Mike Sayers, and uh, I'll be bringing the scriptures to you tonight. Um, just got a question kind of rolling around in my head this week as I was getting ready. If, um, if someone followed you around day in, day out for two or three years, what would that person find out about you? If someone followed you around day in, day out for two or three years, what would that person find out about you? I mean, not even if you're married, you spend that kind of time together normally. You have long stretches of time where you're apart from one another. That saves a lot of marriages. Because I'm wondering what would happen if you were with each other 24-7 for two to three years. I mean, if someone followed you around day in and day out for that long, I mean, they'd find out, for example, how often you went to the bathroom. And that's kind of a jarring thought, really. And it'd be like having a dog that always follows you around and tries to get in the bathroom when you get in. And you have to close the door so they don't come in. Or a person who followed you around day in and day out for two to three years would find out how happy or how content a person you normally are. You couldn't hide it. You'd just be there. They'd find out whether you have a bad temper or not. They just would because they're with you 24-7 for two to three years. They find out who your friends are. And they find out how well you got along with your friends. Because sometimes people don't get along well with their friends, even though they are supposed to be friendly. And, of course, if they know how well you get along with your friends, they're also going to know how you talk about your enemies when they're not around. Because you just can't help yourself when you're spending that kind of time together every day to two to three years. They'd find out what your biggest pleasures are. They'd find out what annoys you. You know, sometimes that's the worst, is the annoying little things, right? Like nails on a chalkboard things that just make you lose your stuff. And you become somebody else for a moment, like that one Snickers commercial, right? They find out how mature your responses are when you are annoyed. They find out about your priorities. And I just don't mean the priorities you say you have, but they would know how you spend your money and they would know how you spend your time. Because time and money are the things that we have that show us our priorities. Like, you want me to tell you what your priorities are? Let me take a look at your bank statement and I'll tell you what your priorities are. And more so, if I could see how you spend the most valuable thing that God has given you, which is your time, I would find out what really matters. People who follow you around for two to three years every day would find out who the loves of your life are. I mean, really, the people that you serve because you truly care about them. They would find out about your family as well, because sometimes those aren't the same. They'd find out how much you pray, how much you talk to Jesus, how much you study the scriptures, how much you read his letters to you. 
And even more than that, I think if somebody followed you around every day for two to three years, they would find out how big of a deal Jesus really is to you. Now, this is our last message in the book of Acts today. We're finishing up right now. We've gone through the whole book of Acts. You can close that book and put it on the shelf until the next time you feel like reading it. Now, we have a reason for going through books of the Bible. at scum. is because we think most people don't know the books of the Bible. Like, we don't know them as well as we think we should. So let's study them as opposed to doing a sermon series on how to feel better about yourself. We do it this way. And so another series has been completed. I just want to say thank you, Jesus, that we got through it. It's great. So, we're going to go to, uh, if I can remember how to do this. Is it that one? Here's the title, A Message on Acts 28 to Acts 1000. You probably didn't know there was an Acts 1000, but you'll find out. Uh, we're going to start off with the voyages of the Apostle Paul. Just so you know, um, so he starts out over here in Jerusalem where he gets tried, right? That was way back in Acts. And um, he comes through here. They have bad weather. And then they come to here. And Paul says, we need to stay right there at Fairhaven. But, of course, they don't listen. They take off. And they get blown by a storm all the way across the Mediterranean. They're like, this takes them two weeks. They're just stuck in the storm. I imagine they're doing this. You know? They're stuck in the storm for like two weeks. Finally crash on the island of Malta right here. And uh, we're going to pick up from right there on the island of Malta. All right. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on the island. That's Malta. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. So, um, you know, I try to liven up the sermons, make you feel like you're a kid again. In Sunday school, you get to look at pictures. There's Castor and... Whoops. There's Castor and Pollux right there. Uh, the twin gods, better known as Gemini. If you're in the Zodiac, they're this constellation in the sky. Gemini, that's who they are. Um... So here's a pagan ship with pagan deities. And this pagan ship with pagan deities is bringing the gospel to Rome. I think that's kind of cool. Um, so they're probably starting around February, March. They're leaving the port. And um, they're going on. They put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Perioli. Now, um, Syracuse is a big city on the island of Sicily, which is where they got to, and then they go from there uh, to uh, Regium. It was an Italian harbor closest to Sicily. And uh, then Putioli was a resort town. <laughs> cool, huh? 
They go to a resort town. Puteoli is a resort town close to Naples. It's close to Pompeii, if you guys didn't know. And um, they made that voyage in like two days, like nine, 90 miles a day. Like they are making time compared to everything that happened back here, all the time it took for them to get from here to here. They make that thing in like two days. They're up from there to there. Boom. They're there. That's kind of cool. All right. Let me see. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the form of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. So Paul is still in the Roman guard, but the Romans have typically let him be taken care of by his friends, and Christians are his friends. They've heard about Paul before, and they heard that he was coming somehow, and so they took him in. Now, not only did they take in Paul, they probably took in the Roman guard, or two, or three, which I think just blows my mind, right? It'd be like if somebody we knew, you know, a friend of scums, let's say Justin McRoberts, was coming through town with his entourage, and we took care of them all. We've actually done that with people, travelers, who come by train. All of a sudden, I remember back in the day when we first got this place, there were like, you know, five, six people we didn't know living in the building. But that's kind of what Christians do. Remember when Stuart Gilmore came over from Scotland with the band, a punk band, and needed to go around, and all of a sudden the Jessies were taking them in. And then they lend them their car so they can go to Seattle to play a gig and back. I mean, who does that for people you don't know very well? Christians do that. That's who does that. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, this is because Paul's a Roman citizen. He has some special privileges. Not only is he a Roman citizen, he's been awesome on this voyage so far, healing people, you know, helping people, being great counsel. And so he's treated fairly well. Now, he's still chained by the wrist to a Roman guard, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, they took shifts. It wasn't always the same person, usually four-hour shifts. So six different guards throughout the day were chaining up to the Apostle Paul. And so Paul and the Gospel became a talking point among the Praetorian Guard. We know this because in Philippians, when Paul was writing the Philippians from jail, by the way, he's writing and he's saying, hey, guess what? The gospel is being talked about by the Praetorian Guard. Well, you want to know why? It's because they were chained to Paul 24-7 for a couple of years, for more than a couple of years. I mean, imagine being chained to Billy Graham 
for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two to three years. Do you think you might start thinking about Christianity? Do you think you might start talking about Jesus with your buddies who are also having to go through the same thing? Like, who's the real captive here? You're talking about a captive audience. Paul had these guys right where he wanted them. A chain's length away. Watching everything he did all the time. Imagine being chained to Pope Francis. You're going, well, that might be kind of fun for a while. He seemed like a cool dude. Or Mother Teresa. You begin to get the idea of what it'd be like to be chained to this guy 24-7. Like you could not get Jesus out of your head. Because it, the conversations would be ringing over and over and over again. Every time you tried to go to sleep, you'd be thinking about the stuff that Paul was saying. You're a pagan Roman soldier. You have your gods, Mars, the god of war, maybe one of them. And all of a sudden you're hearing about this Jewish teacher who was dead and crucified and dead and then resurrected from the dead. And Paul's all excited about him like he's alive. And then you see miracles happen. And you see Paul's life. And you see how his life and what he's saying actually match together. That there's a lot of love going around. People you don't know are taking Paul in. They're taking you in. You're going, maybe there's something too. This Christianity, all because I'm freaking chained to the Apostle Paul 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two to three years. I mean, how many great men made their entry into Rome in the back of a chariot with crowds of people screaming and shouting their names, throwing olive branches. How many great and powerful men who we have never heard of to this day entered Rome like that? And then the Apostle Paul, who's led in, chained, becomes a blessing not just for that time, but for the entire world, for all of history. It's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? You're wondering, did the Apostle Paul like being chained up? I mean, was this part of his plan for his life? He's in a mature years right now. I'm thinking, no. He's probably thinking, I've only got a few years left, God. Let's make them count. Let me go out and do the ministry. Let me do what you call me to do. And God says, no, I'm going to chain you to a Roman guard. You're going to be in a room. And you're going to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a couple of years. Hey, can I ask you a favor? Could somebody turn the heater off? <laughs> Just for me. You guys, get, you guys warm enough? Okay, great. Okay, I feel, I'm starting to feel like a cookie in a baking sheet in an oven, just so you know. So, there's one artist's rendition of what it's like to be chained to the Apostle Paul. Three days later, 
He, Paul, called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. So, just so you know, these are probably maybe several synagogues. Somebody said there were seven synagogues in Rome at this time. I know there were seven hills, but who knows. So there were several synagogues. And these are the leaders from each one of them. It's not like one big giant ruling body like the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. It wasn't like that. And uh, the church there probably, well, let's forget that. So Paul goes on and says, uh, I want you to know that I'm not here because I'm bringing charges against the Jewish people, but because they brought charges against me. I wouldn't do that. I appeal to Caesar because I'm a Roman citizen because, you know, otherwise I would have been killed. It's kind of what was going on, okay? They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And can you just hear a sermon coming? Like that is a lead in line I've ever heard one. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this change. Now let me explain to you from the Pentateuch through the prophets why Jesus is the Messiah, right? And so he just goes on to tell these guys. They say, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Christianity had already come to Italy. It had come to the synagogues. Evidently, there was already some turmoil between the existing Jews and the Jews who had become Christians. Because, alert, most of the Christians at this point were Jewish. All right? There might have been a few converts to Judaism, and there were in Rome, even among some of the nobility. But that means that they would have been exposed then to the new claims of the Messiah. Right? And so... We're told that maybe sometime in the 40s, like 48, 49, Claudius expels the Jews from Rome. So this is like, I don't know, 12 years earlier, 13 years earlier. Pa- Claudius, the emperor, expels the Jews from Rome because there's such turmoil going on, they think, maybe between the Jews who are upset about the Christian Jews. And so <laughs> these guys are not unified. They've just come back after being exiled from Rome for a while. And they've heard about this, but they've heard about it in a negative light. So they're actually open to hearing more from Paul about it. Now, also you're thinking, why didn't... If these guys were so dead set in Jerusalem, if they were so dead set on killing Paul... Why didn't they send letters? Why didn't they come and press charges? Well, there's a little thing about Roman law you should know. If you press charges in a court of Caesar and you're found out that your charges are bogus, 
then the people who bring the charges are punished. So you have Jews in Jerusalem who want Paul dead, but really Caesar is imposing. And so maybe they don't send it for that reason. Maybe they got lost in the storm in the Mediterranean about the same time Paul did. I don't know why they didn't come, but they hadn't heard anything yet. Good for Paul. Gives him a clean slate to be able to talk about Christianity. So, little little deal here. This is kind of... When you study for sermons, sometimes you find historical tidbits that are just fascinating, but add nothing to the sermon. And this is one of those. I'm taking a chance here by telling you. Maybe one of the reasons that um, Paul can come here and the Jews are back is because Claudius is now the emperor. Or no, Nero is now the emperor. Claudius died. Nero is now the emperor. He hasn't gone crazy just yet. But, evidently, one of Claudius' mistresses, I'm sorry, one of Nero's mistresses was sympathetic to the Jews. She was actually married to somebody else. And so Nero's fascinated with her. They start having an affair. And because she's kind of sympathetic to the Jews, we think that's why Nero, at this point, is sympathetic to the Jews. Now, later, we're told that Nero... While she's pregnant with his baby, he gets angry with her and kicks her to death, and she dies and the baby dies. And then Nero actually has her other son from her other marriage drowned when they're out in a fishing trip. I mean, Nero's a bad guy, which is one of the reasons this is a fascinating little tangent that I kept reading about Nero. But anyway, that's, who knows? We don't know why. You didn't need that. The probably is going to mess up the servant for you, but I was fascinated. All right. So, the Jewish leaders arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning until evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others who would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This is from Isaiah 6. It's actually repeated several times in the Gospels in the New Testament. It is the kind of go-to verse for what's going to happen. Paul's policy was always to proclaim the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, then to everybody else. The Jews were first. By and large, the Jews have been rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sad note, just a few years after this is taking place, just a few years, like 
65, 66, 66 AD, there's an uprising in Israel against the Roman government. And uh, it's like the beginning of the end. By 70 AD, there is no more Israel. The Romans have wiped it off the face of the earth. The Jews have scattered the great dispersion, the diaspora, over all of the earth. Something that Jesus predicted, sadly. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not come. Your destruction is close. That's what that was about. Then Paul says, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. They will listen. I don't know how well we've listened over the last 2,000 years, but we've managed to circumvent the globe with the gospel. I don't know how well we've obeyed, but we're stumbling along, trying. It's because of Israel's rejection of the gospel that Paul would go to the Gentiles. In every town, in every synagogue, he would go to the Jews first, and then he would go to the Gentiles. You know, you may think this is terrible of God to do it this way. I personally look at it as a divine act of severe mercy. Anybody here a parent? I mean, what do you do when your kid just will not listen? What do you do? I'll tell you what you do when they get older. You kind of leave them to their own designs. You kind of go, I taught you everything I know. And if you don't want to follow good advice, then I guess you'll have to learn the hard way. That's what parents do. I think that's what God's doing. He's going, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to get jealous of the Gentiles. Because they're going to have faith. They're going to have passion. They're going to have the Word of God. They're going to take it around the world. And you're going to look at them and you're going to get pissed. But maybe it'll start something inside of you to seek after me. I think that's part of what God's doing. Now, I don't know all of what God's doing because I'm not that smart. And He's got a plan. But I think that's part of it. And now the last two verses of the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. We think it's two years because um, 
Roman law said if your accusers didn't show up within two years, then they dropped it and you were free to go. So most theologians think that Paul didn't get beheaded at the end of this imprisonment, this house arrest, that he actually was released and went and did more ministry. That's what we think. Rearrested at some point around 67. And then uh, imprisoned and things look pretty dark as he starts talking about in First and Second Timothy like he knows the end is close. And then he gets beheaded in Rome. Gets beheaded and not crucified because he's a Roman citizen. And they considered that a more merciful way to die. Because it was. At least on this side of it, we think it's more merciful. I don't know what happens when you get your head chopped off. I don't know if you can think for a while and wonder, feels like my body's still there. Or, look, there's my body. I don't know what's going on. But it takes a lot shorter time to die than it does when you're on a cross. So, Paul is at his rented house in Rome. And uh, while he's there, he writes the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians. He writes the letter to Philemon. Most every scholar is unanimous about this. The other letters came during a second imprisonment. So, you know, you're wondering what's Paul doing while he's sitting there? I mean, he could be like putting together his defense. I'm going to get this down. When I get before Caesar, his representatives, I'm going to present a case. They won't have a chance. No, that's not what he's doing. He's doing ministry stuff. He's doing what he was called to do. And so we come to the end of Acts. The Apostle Paul is in a rented house. Would he rather be free? He's stuck. And he's writing. And he's writing. Here's W.A. Criswell, Baptist pastor from Texas, who says this, There is no formal conclusion to the book of Acts because God doesn't conclude the book of Acts. We have the 28th chapter here in our Bible. But God intends for there to be a 29th chapter. And God intends that there be a 30th chapter. And God intends that there be a 1,000th chapter. And God intends that there be chapters and chapters in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes again. I mean, the book ends rather abruptly. You're left thinking like, well, what happens? But you're not given it. Because Luke doesn't care to write it. Either because that's all there was up to that point, or because it's really not about Paul. We started in Jerusalem with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We're winding up in Rome, the capital of the ancient world. It's the scope of what's happened, what the Holy Spirit has done, how churches have sprung up from Judea. From Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Just, it keeps going out. And it keeps going out. 
It just ends this way. With the gospel not done being preached. So, I'm thinking to myself, well, what's the application? Okay, it's a great story. Thank you for that information, Dr. Luke. What do I do with that? And um, I think it's our job to keep talking about Jesus to whomever is close, to whomever God chains us to. I think that's what we do. I mean, as Americans, Jesse Girl says we all look for reasons that we shouldn't do something. I mean, look at all these hardships. Look at all these signs that we should just shut down and just cool our heels for a while. Paul was convinced he was supposed to keep saying something. And so he kept saying something when it got hard. I mean, Luke says the gospel was preached without hindrance. I'm going, without hindrance? Are you kidding me? Look at his hands. He's got chains on his hands. He's got a Roman guard standing over. He's got to ask permission to go to the bathroom too. How is this not a hindrance? It doesn't matter. The hardships were opportunities. Every stumbling block becomes a stepping stone toward fulfilling God's will. You know, we talked about God's GPS in the middle of a storm, knowing exactly where Paul was. Well, he knows exactly where Paul is here now. He knows exactly where you are every day as you go about your day. God knows who's next to you in the carol at work. God knows who's sitting next to you in the class at university. God knows who's next to you on the bus. God knows. And you're thinking, could there be a plan here? We don't know. We should find out. Now, one of the things that I I believe we need to look at here is that... um, What about the Jews? I mean, it's... Kind of brings up the Jews, right? Anybody here have Jewish friends growing up? Anybody here Jewish? I mean, I had a lot of Jewish friends growing up. Went to Neil Neil Sheffel's Bar Mitzvah at 13. Um, It was great. So we're we're late getting there because my mom is on Greek time. We're always late, right? And so we go to the synagogue, and everybody else is already inside. There's one guy a little older than me. He's going inside. I follow him. I watch what he does. He goes in. He pulls this yarmulke out of this bin. He puts it on his hat. Goes in the next bin. He gets the prayer shawl. Puts the prayer shawl on. He walks in. I'm going, that must be what you do. So I did that, not knowing that you don't put on the prayer shawl unless you've had a bar mitzvah yourself. And just like in Protestant churches, you go in the Jewish synagogue and all the seats in the back fill up first, and the only ones open were the front row seats. Like a little declining kind of amphitheater thing, you know. And so I go, and I'm standing, and then sitting and standing in the front, 
waiting for this thing to begin. Now, I look Greek, right? If you're Jewish, I look Jewish. If you're Lebanese, I look Lebanese. So I'm sitting there, and the rabbis come out with Neil. One of them walks quickly over to me, bends down, and motions with his finger, come on. I'm going, uh, no, 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 you don't, no way, no. I'm, mm-mm, just come on, come on, everybody's looking, got you, come on. And being a very obedient, compliant, firstborn kid, I follow him up on this platform. And they kind of lead me over, I don't know what I'm doing, to this big wall cabinet, and they open the cabinet, and lo and behold, there are the scrolls of the Torah. And I'm supposed to carry the Torah for Neil to go read from. And, you know, by this time they're figuring out, I don't know what I'm doing, but they're going to go through with it. So these goyim hands carried the holy scrolls. I picked them up, I took them over, I put them down. Neil's mom is laughing her ass off up up in the seats. I had a bunch of Jewish friends, okay? Um, And I'll never forget when several of my Jewish friends came to Christ. And it was crazy. One girl, um, Shelly Hirsch, she became a Christian on the day of her bat mitzvah. Because all these Christian girls that I knew were talking to her all the time, every day, talking about Jesus and about how he fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures. And so somehow during the ceremony, like the girls' bar mitzvah basically, she has this revelation and she decides to turn her life over to Jesus the Messiah that day. She's like 13, 14 years old. Tells her rabbi, what she's done. He calls her into the office. He says, so, you've become a Christian. She said, yes. He says, and how and why? She goes, well, I I studied. He goes, studied? You studied? And then he points to his library full of books. This is study. You say you've studied? Shelley is one of the most intelligent women I have ever met. National Merit Scholar, medical school, the whole, the whole thing, right? She's an inventor. She's still a believer to this day. Marty Feldman was, uh, when, I, when I changed schools, he was like the wild student council body president. I mean, he... Wild hair, you know, dark glasses, smoking pot. I mean, just crazy and intelligent. Marty becomes a believer sometime when we're in college. I mean, I have seen plenty of Jewish people come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they school you on what should be going on when you're reading the Old Testament. There is nothing like doing an Old Testament Bible study with a Jew. I'm telling you, it's awesome. They give you background, they give you history, they give you insight. I swear, God still likes them a whole lot and gives them special blessings and insights. 
1989, there was a Lausanne II, a Congress about evangelism, and they had it in uh, the Philippines, I think. Moshe Rosen, who is the, Rosen, who is the uh, founder and the president of uh, Jews for Jesus, says this there. Folk memories of the horrors of the Middle Ages die hard. To many Jewish people, the name of Christ invokes only the remembrance of state persecution. The cross is only an image of the sword. And the very word mission means the experience of coercive proselytization. When we bring the gospel to Jewish people, and I think we still should, I think that's part of what this passage is saying to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. We should come with an attitude of humility, of repentance, perhaps even apologizing for the way that Christians over the years, especially in Europe, have treated Jews. It's ironic that the first major controversy in the early church in Acts was whether or not Gentiles should be allowed in the church as Gentiles. And whether anybody other than Jews should be discipled. And today the controversy becomes the opposite. Whether Jews themselves should be discipled. And I'm saying yes, they should. Maybe you never heard that in a sermon before. But I'm telling you that's the truth. It's right here in chapter 28 of the book of Acts. One of the pressing issues in the early church was whether Christians needed to become like Jews when they first became Christians. And the answer was no, they don't. That's what the council said. All right. In the same way, we should not make Jews behave like Gentiles when they become Christians. The second part of this story that I think actually gives us an application for our life is that whole, what if somebody was chained to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week for two to three years? What would happen? Here's the deal. I'm not asking you to take an evangelism course. I'm not asking you to raise your hand and commit to share Jesus with people door to door. I'm not asking that. I'm asking simply that you be who you are. Powerless, little you. You know, I think part of what we're seeing right now in this country is Christians losing political clout. I think the day when the moral majority, the Christian right, held huge sway in political elections, I think is it's it's crumbling. And I think that's okay. 
Paul certainly didn't have any political clout. He was just one little old guy. And he was imprisoned by that political power. And he was able to get the message through in some ways better than if he had been emperor. For the Apostle Paul, it wasn't about political power or social dominance. It was about being who he was in a situation that he found himself in. So I just want you to be who you are. I want you to be who you are. We had a girl uh, here got baptized just this year, and she was telling the story about how she came to Christ. And... Um, she really grew up in a non-religious culture. And uh, a girl she knew and liked a lot, a good friend of hers, got killed in the car wreck. And she went to the uh, funeral over at Cherry Hills Community Church down in Highlands Ranch. And then she heard all these people talking about her friend's faith. She had never known her friend was a committed Christian. Never known. But it was through the contact with people who did know that she was a Christian that she slowly began opening herself up to the reality of Jesus Christ in her life. And so all I'm trying to say is this. If you have a close friend who's with you hours and hours every month, and that friend doesn't know that you love Jesus, would you please start being who you are around that friend? That's all I'm asking. Just start being who you are. For me, it was similar. Um, the classmates who first told me about Jesus... I mean, I knew them because I was with them in classes day in and day out. They made time for Bible study and they invited me in. I wasn't a believer. But they invited me to come to their Bible study because they did it every Friday morning at 6 a.m. before school. So I came with my skeptic's brain and I would argue with the Bible study leader. Hey, Scott. Is this a fairy tale I heard once? Uh, uh, uh. I was very bright in those days. But I kept going back. And I'll tell you why. It's because there was something these people had that I didn't have. I didn't know what it was, but I liked them. They were nice to each other. They were nice to me. They made time for Bible study and they invited me. They made time for prayer. They made time for Jesus. What really touched my cold heart was that they made time for Mike Sayers. They made time to answer my questions even when I was being interred. They made time to give me a ride home when I was going to walk. They made time to eat with me and laugh with me and cry with me. And by the time the summer of 1972 happened, I was a graduate of high school. I was going to a Bible study. I wasn't a Christian. And 
I was sitting there in the Bible study, and just all of a sudden, it all clicked. God touched me. It was a miraculous experience. I went, whoa. All of a sudden, I get it. So I'm not asking you to try harder to evangelize anybody tonight. What I am asking you to do is allow yourself to be chained to someone who needs Jesus very, very badly. Remember that little line in Hook, the movie, where the little girl looks at Captain Hook, played by Dustin Hoffman, and she says, You need a mommy very, very badly. And I want to say we have people around us who need Jesus very, very badly. You know, maybe you can't do it all on your own. Maybe you've got to go in shifts like the Roman guard did with Paul. <laughs> maybe you take friends. And all of you care for and chain yourself to someone who doesn't know Jesus. I mean, after all, you know, Jesus chained himself to you. Has he not? 24 hours a day. Seven days a week. He's right there. All the time. Never leaves you. Never forsakes you. He's there with you when you're crying. He's there with you when you're alone. He's there with you when you're laughing and you're with friends. He will never, ever leave you. And he said, you know what? I want you to remember that I'm this close to you. So on the night that he was betrayed, he got his friends together. And he said, I want you to do this while you're eating. He said, from now on, whenever you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, I want you to remember me. Because, because this bread is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. And he did this so he could be with us day in, day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for two years, for three years, for four years, for 10 years, for 50 years, for 100 years, for 1,000 years, for all of eternity. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we glorify you. In the end, we are all beggars looking for bread. And you are the bread of life. You have come down from heaven. We get in line with the Apostle Paul to state that you are everything. And you are worthy to be talked about, not just in Acts chapter 28, but in Acts chapter 1000 and beyond. In your name we pray. Amen.